we're going to give ourselves 10 years to do it. We're going to set a target of knocking out 65% of our carbon emissions. And we're going to give ourselves a decade. I'll be back to you every, every year to tell you how we're doing. And we're going to start it with uh, committees. And I'm going to ask people throughout this company to, to work on it. And then at the end, I said, you know, we've always had three goals in this organization. One, to grow faster than the competition. Two, to give a good return to our shareholder, to our owner. And three, to have fun while doing number one and two. Today, I announced a uh, fourth goal of the company, and that's to do less harm to the earth. And I said, and I expect everyone here to take that as a company goal and act on it. It was full bore from the beginning. We launched it as one of the core pieces of the culture of the company from the start. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. I often say that there's little of what I would call leadership in the area of sustainability. What I call management, there's plenty of. That's things like measuring, facts, figures, seeking compliance. By leadership, I mean stories, images, working on the system, not just in it. Seeking inspiration, not just compliance. Researching Ray Anderson, and I'll let you look up Ray Anderson. He's got a TED Talk and he's wonderful to learn about. He led me to John Sargent, who you'll hear in this conversation, led and managed. I'll introduce him by reading the quote at macmillan.com from him as CEO. Now for context, Macmillan is, for this reading from Wikipedia, a British publishing company considered to be one of the big five. Founded in London in 1843 by Daniel and Alexander Macmillan, since 1999, it's been a subsidiary of Holtzbrink Publishing Group with offices in 41 countries worldwide and operations in more than 30 others. So the rest of my introduction will be just quoting him, and I recommend following the links to learn more, detailing his and Macmillan's results. So quote, in 2009, after reading Ray Anderson's Confessions of a Radical Industrialist, I decided it was Macmillan's responsibility to lessen our impact on the earth, and in particular, to lower our carbon emissions. We created a senior position in the company and spent well over a year measuring our carbon footprint. We then set ourselves the daunting goal of reducing our scope one, two, and major three carbon emissions by 65%, and we gave ourselves a decade to get it done. Over the course of the last nine years, we've made sustainability a major component of all our decisions at the company. In 2010, we instituted a carbon offset program to supplement our efforts. Over the last nine years, we have lowered our carbon emissions by roughly 50%, and with our offsets, we've been carbon neutral globally for the last two years. Getting here has not been easy. We've initiated lots of projects. We have often failed, but we've been relentless in our efforts. We always try to make good common sense decisions along the way, keeping a balanced approach. In the end, we will not reach our goal of a 65% reduction, but we will have been relentless in our approach and it has become a matter of great pride in our company. The completion of our 10-year plan leaves us again at the starting line. Climate change is now a burning issue. Parenthetically, he adds, as I write this, the Amazon rainforest is literally burning, end of parenthesis. We must rededicate ourselves to the cause and willingly sacrifice when called upon. There's a lot to do. I'm looking forward to getting after it. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with John Sargent. John, how are you doing? I'm well. We were just talking, meeting for the first time, and you said, let's just go and let's start recording. So I'm a little bit less prepared than usual, but I'm going to say what brought me to you was looking up Ray Anderson as one of the main figures of bringing sustainability to business and being very successful at it. And it happened to lead me to stumble on your name as someone very much 
I guess you published him and yes. very much influenced by him. And you, there's a page, I think, sustainability.mcmillan.com mm-hmm. that says something that struck me that it says a lot of things. But what really got me was you said, you know, we're following in his footsteps. We're trying to do what he did. And we failed at a lot of things. And the end result that we're getting for is really just the beginning. And this struck me as leadership and authenticity that is missing, I think, from a lot of major industrial efforts at sustainability and made me think, I got to get this guy. (laughs) I want to hear what his experience was like. And both before, upon reading uh, Anderson's book, and then since then, and then as it turned out, here we are in the winter 2020, 2021, and you're also on the front page of um, a change in your career. So here we are. I wonder if maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background in publishing leading up to reading Confessions of a, of a Radical Industrialist. So I've been in publishing since I graduated from college, relatively uh, standard path, quicker, quicker than most, but came into the business, did well, went from, in order to go up the sort of ladder, went from one, one company to another, got to be a CEO at a, a, a relatively early age. So uh, I spent the last 24 years as CEO at Holtzbrink of first of St. Martin's Press and then of all of Macmillan. And basically, when I, when I read uh, Ray's book, we had published him at St. Martin's Press, and I was at the time CEO of uh, St. Martin's and a whole a bunch of other uh, publishers in, in the United States. And, and I thought I thought the most interesting part of Ray's sort of view of the world was his realization when he was standing in his office uh, looking out over the manufacturing floor. His company made uh, carpets primarily out of nylon, which is you know petroleum-based. Uh, and he looks out over the floor and he, he realizes that one day in the future, he will go to jail for doing what he is doing. Trying to understand how the tradition of a company run for profit and growth, how you could make it more than that. And so that, that sort of, you know, that, that was the beginning of, call it the intellectual exercise of trying to understand how to run a company where, as Ray described it, you know, a company that, that uh, would do the right thing. It's one thing to read someone else talking about their stuff. And it's another thing to apply it to your own life. I think a lot of people think, oh, that's really great for them. But, you know, I have to do this and my life makes it impossible and my business is different. How did you personalize that? Because a lot of people, it's just they say, well, that's for someone else. Yeah. So I, Ray, Ray said something. I, I went to, we had a little get together for a bunch of people and Ray made a speech at the beginning and he described the, the earth as a, if you think of the earth as a basketball and you think of the atmosphere around the earth as a, as a piece of cellophane, you know, saran wrap, uh, wrapped around the basketball. That's the way to think of how fragile the the actual atmosphere is. And this is, of course, the great thing about storytelling, and this is a great thing about books and, and uh, books in particular, right, is, is it doesn't answer all the questions for you. There's this image that, that sits there when you think of that, of the, of the cellophane, and you think, Jesus Christ, that, that is something that 
that you can grasp, right? That's not facts and figures. That's something that really, if you think of that, you think, geez, that is fragile. And then for me, at least, it wasn't about reading the techniques and all of that. I, I thought that was pretty, pretty secondary. I thought it has to be the frame of mind that's important. And the only way this works is if I can find a way to, to have everybody in the company have that frame of mind that that thing is of value. And this, this was 10 years ago. So, you know, it wasn't widely spread. It, it was there, but, but it, it wasn't like anywhere near like it was today. But it occurred to me that this was the right thing to do, right? And then it became an exercise of how for it to work, for, it, for you to lead an organization to do it, it has to be authentic from the, from the guy who's, who's running the place, right? So it has to be, in some ways, top down. People have to look and say, this matters in this company. And the way to do that is the guy running it, the woman running it, has to have passion, has to feel it, and has to be able to convey it. And at the same time, you have to make sure that the people will come with you, right? So it can't be something that everybody is opposed to. And so when I thought about that, I thought, you know, I think I can convince them. And it was, I'm a, a bit of a, a tree hugger type from, from years. I'm a, an, I like to be in nature. And so I thought, you know, I, I could do this. And, and uh, then I thought through how to do it and uh, sort of the mechanics of it. And, and we did. And, and Jesus, we made so many mistakes, you know, over and over. Bill, I remember, remind me to tell you the story of Bill McKibben when he, uh, when he came to see us. We published him as well. To do it, you have to have the passion yourself and you have to learn yourself. And to learn yourself, you have to make some mistakes. And so we made a lot of mistakes. I want to go back a step. For you to say you have to be authentic and the people have to want to do it implies that you could be inauthentic. And I would guess that going back to the beginning, there must was there some self-doubt? Was there some measure of maybe I don't really know what I'm doing or... The way you said it sounded like it was easy, and maybe it was. What? Uh, maybe Ray had a way of putting things that made it like I see exactly what to do, but I, I suspect that there were some feelings of what if I take the company down? What if no one agrees with me or things like that? I didn't have, it, to be honest. I didn't have a lot of that. I had a. I did some thinking of was this was there arrogance in this, and was this something that I was passionate about, but I had no right to, you know, with the ownership of the company, no right to sort of take the company on this, on this track. So w- what I did, it was odd. It, it wasn't that I knew it was the right thing to do, right? I didn't have that sort of, mm, mm, this could be the end of the company or this could cost us. I, I knew moral equivocating, right? There was no, is this the right thing? I felt that. But what I did is I went to the owner of our company and I just, I may, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say it. I made up a number. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I went to him and I said, look, I want to make sustainability one of the core values of the company. And I want to focus 100% on carbon emissions. And I said, uh, but it's going to cost us. And it's going to cost us a million dollars a year for five years. And that's a significant number for our company. And I said, uh, I need 
to go forward, I need you to commit to five years. And I mean, it doesn't matter if the company's having a good year, a bad year, a catastrophic year. We have to put that amount of money in every year to get this done. Will you support this? And he's fantastic. He looked at me and he said, yes, just like that. It was in a, uh, it was in a car on a side street in uh, Madrid, suburbs of Madrid. And we're sitting there. He had turned the car off and I started talking and he looked at me. He said, yeah. And we got out of the car and we went inside. That was that. Had he been thinking about it already himself or was it you were persuasive or? Yeah, he had been not on that scale, right? What he had been conscious of environmentalism and he had been conscious that it was the right thing to do. And he knew about the carbon argument versus the other types of arguments. And he's very into science. He's a science guy. And so he had read and understood some of the science of, uh, of carbon and uh, carbon emissions. So he knew enough to know that this was a good, a good thing. And, and he did not, uh, he did not hesitate at all to say yes. <laughs> to your fictional number. <laughs> yeah, to my number. I, I, you know, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know what it's going to cost to take like a major corporation with, you know, a couple thousand employees? How do you take that to, to carbon neutral in, in a 10-year time period? You know, wow. And, you know, the hadn't done all the work yet to know exactly what the targets would be and how we would do it. And, and didn't have any idea about carbon offsets or any of that at the time. And so it, it was just sort of, I picked a number that was a really substantial number. So he knew I was serious. Then I figured we'd figure it out as we went along the way. And he's good at giving autonomy. So uh, I knew I could make the decisions and then I didn't have to worry that he'd want to make the decisions. And so uh, you know, he said yes. And, and that's when I started to think, you know, okay, exactly how do we do this? And how big can we go? Didn't know anything about scope one, scope two, scope three, any of that stuff at the time. Just knew, okay, let's get after it, you know? And I remember being just, I was pumped for it. You know, I was, I was hugely enthusiastic. Enthusiastic makes me feel like moving, wanting to move a lot, but not really knowing what direction. I read that there was some, a Barry, there's some, you brought someone in. Yeah. Was that right at the beginning or later? Yeah. No, that was as soon as I got the approval. I, it was an interesting process I went through. I thought I should hire somebody, you know, to, to make this work. There's going to have to be somebody in charge of it because, you know, I, I have a day job. I, I can't do this, you know, sort of just on the side. It's never going to get there. So I have to have someone with, you know, and someone with power, you know, someone who who was smart and knew management and knew how to and could do the research and figure it out. And I thought, what I need is a guy who's done sustainability before. So I thought, I'm going to get, you know, uh, executive vice president of sustainability from someplace. And then I looked at it just really high level. And I thought, you know what? What we do is we chop down trees and turn it into books. And I thought, you know, that's the carbon emission. That's the big thing, you know. That's scope big, three, right? That's yeah, yeah. It, so I thought, the big pie. Wow. I said, what I need is actually what I need is someone who knows our business. It's not someone. I don't need someone who knows sustainability. That can be figured out. I needed someone who knows all the different areas of publishing, all the different sort of uh, functions. 
what needs to be done to change all the pieces of publishing so that we make real gains in sustainability. And, you know, you have to understand, you know, size and scope of sales forces and how sales organizations work. And you have to understand all this stuff. So by chance, Bill, I'd known Bill for years and uh, he was available. He had just gone through a career change thing and he was available. And I asked him if he would come in. I'd known him for for years, a friend. And I asked him, I said, would you come do this with me? And would you do it? I don't know how much of your time I'm going to need. I suspect it'll be full time, but I don't know. But would you start? You know, we'll call it, you figure out how many days a week you have to start. And let's figure out a deal where, you know, you get paid and, and come in and let's see what we need to do. And he wasn't, he's not, he's not an environmental guy. You know, he hadn't been spending a ton of time trying to, you know, moved an environmental agenda forward, but he had run a publishing company before and he had been a senior executive in publishing a long time. And he was a particularly, particularly good at manufacturing and, and figuring out uh, the sort of the production process of books. And I thought that was the key. So I, so I hired Bill and then we just, we just put our heads together and, and tried to figure out what to do and how to do it. And, and of course, the first thing you have to do is figure out before you figure out what the goal is, you have to know how much carbon you're burning and you have to know what your focus is going to be. So basically the first effort was Bill, come in here. Let's figure out the carbon footprint uh, of where our carbon emissions are coming from. And let's make sure that we want to do carbon right? Because there's all sorts of things you can measure, all sorts of things you can do. And how much focus should we put on carbon versus the other things? And that's what we started with. I want to pause here and and I've got to put in a plug for the strategy of this podcast. All the time people come to me and they say, Josh, I know the perfect guest. They're doing this uh, recycling program in a small town or something like that. But I'm, I think what's missing is not more, I mean, I support all these sustainability efforts, but bring leadership, effective leadership to the environment. I'd much rather have the CEO of Exxon who probably doesn't think too much, well, probably does think about sustainability. Yeah, and, a lot. Yes. Someone who brings in leadership. I mean, in your, in your case, it's both. So I also agree. And, and you know, in no way do I want to stop people from working on, and, and I want to get publicity for people who are doing sustainability things, but we have to bring people from outside, but who are, who are successful at leading and yeah. the various skills that are, that are relevant. And by any chance, you said he did a lot of operations. Was uh, Deming part of the philosophy by any chance? Was who? Uh, w. Edwards Deming. He's someone I've been studying and no. using as a role model. Okay. No. And I kind of want to ask what the success... I, I'm curious to ask successes and failures. I'll let you decide which to start with or which to go first with. So I'll go with the... I'll go with... Um, why don't I start with the challenges of the single greatest, if you're interested in the leadership, um, why don't I start with the, in many ways, the most interesting piece of it, which was we had to figure out what our goal was. And what we decided is, you know, it was going to be carbon and we were not going to worry about toxicity of ink and we were not going to worry about all the various things we were doing or could be doing that were bad to the environment what we would worry about is lowering our carbon emissions. And we decided without that focus, it was going to be easy to get lost and that we needed to focus the energy. 
So when we decided on that, then the, the most interesting problems, leadership problems, were not actually getting the company. We figured out how to do that, and I can talk later about how we did it. It was actually the environmental NGOs, right? So we looked at recycling, and you know, there's a big push to use recycled paper, and there are a bunch of NGOs who were pushing at that point, it was when they were starting, right? So they're pushing for, you know, all people who use a lot of paper need to use it, at least need to make a five-year commitment to have 20% post-consumer uh, waste in their paper. And Bill dug into that. And what we discovered was that in actuality, the world's supply of paper and, and uh, recycled paper is a limited, limited supply. They were going in ships to China. And the ships, there was no carbon impact because the ships were going back. They'd come full and they'd go back empty. So they'd have to fill their holes with seawater for ballast. And instead, they'd fill it with scrap paper. And scrap paper uh, was in great need in China. And China, if they didn't have enough paper, of course, would end up using the tropical rainforests in Asia in order to supply. So we thought, wait a minute, the best global use of recycled paper is to make sure China has as much supply as they can take so that they won't chop down the rainforests or import them from other uh, Southeastern Asian countries. So we decided that uh, we didn't want to push recycling. We thought that was the wrong way to go, that there were, there were clean alternatives of managed forestry in North America that were actually more carbon efficient. But, you know, when the Rainforest Action Network comes in and says, you know, guess what? You're a bad actor because you don't use a lot of recycled paper. Then there's a battle, right? Because you don't want the Rainforest Action Network saying you're a bad actor and, and you don't want your employees and the people you do business with thinking you're a bad actor, particularly when you're putting these tons of effort in. So there was a moment where it would have been pretty easy to just say, okay, we'll we'll shift gears and we'll we'll use more recycled paper and we'll be fill out their scorecard and uh, they'll think we're we're good guys and we'll make a pledge. And and the leadership says no, you know, we're not going to do that. Because that's actually not the right thing in our mind. And so it ended up being two years of working with the Rainforest Action Network. And they, they finally certified us as good guys. But it took two years to convince them because their agenda was recycling, right? And later it was Greenpeace. And Greenpeace's, Greenpeace's thing was saving the woodland caribou of Canada. And there's these moments where you have to decide between something you know is right and something you feel is more right. So there's no good answer. And those are the times when leadership matters the most. I'm reading that this is a, an emotional journey as much as a physical yeah. or corporate journey. And if, let me see if I can get it. At the beginning, it sounds like there's inspiration followed by a determination maybe. But I think a lot of it seems to be to correct me if I'm wrong, but like a fun process of like, what are we doing here? Like, like an introspective, reflective growth, like personal growth journey that the corporate stuff all probably followed from, that if you had, 
if you had delegated it and said, oh, just I'll, I'll create a sustainability team and let them figure it out. And meanwhile, you're not actually in it yourself. That would be like yeah. a self-congratulatory and hopeful, hope for the best. It, it wouldn't work, right? So that, that's what I was talking about before in the authentic thing. The, the person running it, right? The person running the enterprise, whatever it is. The, if it's Joe Biden running the United States, if it's... Uh, the guy running Exxon, if, it, if you look at oh, Silicon Valley companies, any of these big companies, if the person at the top doesn't believe it and is giving lip service because they think it's good, right? I'm going to bring in a senior vice president of sustainability and then they'll figure that shit out and I'll just be over here getting the work done. People feel that. They look at, they look at the top. And if you, when you talk about it, if they don't feel that you care and that you're involved and that you're driving it, they say, you know, what? why should I feel like I care and that I'm involved and I should drive it? So you have to be able to project the, the passion you have for it, and you have to have that passion. I think that's a, a prerequisite. You have, to, you have to care. They have to feel people in the organization have to look at the person at the top. They have to look at her and say, you know, gee, she really – she cares about this. This is this is not you know something uh, lighthearted that's going to go away next year, so I don't have to pay attention to it. This is part of what's going to. This is the way it's going to be. We had a headquarters in the Flatiron Building, and uh, I used to wander around the Flatiron Building, and and every office had windowed air conditioners, right? And literally the whole building was air conditioned through windowed air conditioners. And so I used to wander around and and. If people had their window, uh, their air conditioner set at 68 or 70, I'd feel that office was cold and I'd walk in and I'd say, I'm sorry, I think you have your air conditioner set at the wrong temperature. And I would walk over and I'd change it to 78. And so people could understand that how much it mattered, right? Because I would show them that all the time. Man, I wish I'd met you earlier because this is like, I love stuff like I, I'm this way. My, uh, during COVID at the beginning, I was uh, at my mom's house, which is about a hundred miles outside the city. And I'm turning the lights off all the time. And they're like, I would have liked to have said, oh, you know, John Sargent at McMillan is doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an interesting thing that I, I drew a line that, that, uh, it's interesting, right? Everybody has to come to their own decisions for themselves. And I would, I would meet with, all the new employees who worked in our New York office, when they came to work, after sometime in their first month, there'd be a breakfast and I would go and I would talk to them all. And I'd talk to them about the company and the culture and this, that, and the other. And I always said, now look, the, we have a, a large sustainability effort uh, going on here. And I'd tell them what the targets were. And I'd say, uh, I don't care what you do at home. At home, that's your life and it's your decision making. But when you come to work, I expect you to be serious about carbon emissions. And it is requirement that you take our work on carbon seriously. But at home, I would hope that you would bring some of what you learn home with you. But that is up to you. And one of the things I've discovered that I, decisions I've made, unlike some of the ones you've made, is that, you know, I have a family and I don't dictate to my family, right? I don't tell my wife she can't buy bottles of plastic water. That's her decision. I don't tell my kids to turn the lights off. That's their decision. They know what I feel about it. They laugh at me because, you know, got way, way back. I started refusing to use plastic bags and I, 
I'd, I'd wear stuff with big pockets and I'd load all my pockets up and come home and they just, they'd laugh at me. And I'd say, you know, I don't want a straw. I'd say every time I ordered a drink in a restaurant, no straw, please. And they just think, oh my God, waiters would look at me and go, you know, what is wrong with this guy? And they were good humored about it, but they didn't have the same stuff. So I never forced anything because in my belief, it's, it's a personal thing. You have to decide on your commitment level. And, and if, you, if you force it on people in your relationships, it'll lead to strain in the relationship and, and it won't be a positive thing. It'll be a thing that people feel encumbered by. And, and that's not right, right? What you have to do is try to make them feel it themselves. And if you're successful at that, it works. And if, you, if you're not successful at having them feel it themselves, you have to move on and find the next person who, who might be, right? You have, to, you have to keep finding your champions and not spend your time knocking your head against the wall of someone who just isn't there, doesn't see it, doesn't believe it. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Well, just for the record, at my mom's house, I, these are always rooms that no one's in, that no one's been in for a while. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I also agree that the imposition on someone, I, I don't want to present myself as like the Dalai Lama here, but I find that listening to other people is far more effective at leading them to consider different ways than telling them. Of course, I catch myself telling people all the time. I wish I listened to myself more than I do. <laughs> of course. It's a hard place to, everybody has to, one of the things I've learned is everybody draws the line in a different place, right? So what we did in the company is we, we decided it had to be grassroots. So we, we set up all these committees first uh, by sort of the individual publishing companies, and then cross-functional. So we put all the people in charge of office space. It, we have offices across the country. All the people who are in charge of office space met as a group to discuss sustainability in office space. And all the people in production met about sustainability, the books. So we set up both inside each individual operating division teams and then teams by function across the company. And you have your zealots, right? So we had, we had people who were, were thinking what we have to do is make sure that we compost. It's a flat iron building in the middle of New York City. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out how to get people to turn their, their air conditioning thermostats down. It, and some of the zealots were, no, we need to make sure that no waste goes out of this building that isn't composted. And I had to look at that and think, you know, that's going to be a bridge too far. I mean, that's for the next round, right? That's not a big number. And we have a lot of work to do on the big number. And if we come in and force every activity, everything to, to be environment first, then we're going to have problems. So I thought, let's figure out the big stuff and get the big stuff. And I remember I uh, tell a story of a sales conference and there were a pile of tchotchkes that a publishing company had made for the sales force. You know, there were some mugs there and there were some 
t-shirts and there's, there's just stuff, you know, and it had company logo on it, or it was about individual books. And, uh, one of the true, you know, true believers, a young woman who was really passionate about it. And I knew her from the committees came up to me and pointed at that. She said, that is reprehensible. That will not get used. We have to get rid of that. And I said to her, I said, look, that's what people in the marketing function do to do their jobs. It might not all get you, but it's also what authors see and really appreciate because they understand that the people in the marketing love their book and, and are going out of their way to try to get other people in the company excited about the book. I said, I said, look at that and actually think through the environmental impact of what's on that table. And, you know, it's not much. It's not much. And turning off all the spigots simultaneously everywhere is not going to win this battle. We have to turn off the big ones first, and then we'll work our way through. But stay focused on the big ones and stay positive about this. Stay positive. And, uh, and you know, if, if you look at that, you think, okay, there's some T-shirts. You know, are they cotton? Okay. Well, or are they synthetic? Okay. Well, move it from one to the other. Of course, then you discover that's a pretty hard decision. It's easy to say now, you know, but as it turns out, you know, cotton t-shirt is probably worse than a synthetic t-shirt environmental. And that, that's the thing that when, when you ask, did I know, you know, how confident was I, that's the thing that was appallingly difficult was for every solution, you could not be sure that you weren't making it worse. And cotton is a good example, right? You would think cotton's a natural fiber. It's much better than a synthetic fiber, but the environmental impact of raising cotton is terrible. And so, you know, it was never clear. There were never, I mean, there's some decisions that are easy. If you just stop doing something, the carbon impact is pretty clear, right? I am no longer going to make galleys, advanced reading copies of books. If you're not using the paper, and you stop using the paper, it's pretty clear CO2 emissions are going down. You know, that's a win. But when you have to decide whether to put it on this paper or that paper, then it becomes really difficult to understand, are you doing the right thing? Or are you doing something wrong? And we, another moment that was important on the leadership front on this is we got about, we got a it took us, I thought it was going to be three months to do our carbon footprint. It was like 14 months, or, you know, 12, it was over a year, uh, under a year and a half and over a year before we figured out what our carbon footprint was. It was that complicated. And you had to look at, okay, so I'll give you an example for travel. You know, it's not enough to say, it's enough to say you cut down travel, you cut down your carbon, that's clear. But to measure your carbon footprint, is it okay to say this was a flight from New York to Los Angeles, X number of miles, put it through a carbon counter, and that's your carbon? Or is it important to understand that if there was a stop on that flight in Chicago, the carbon math is different? And then it's actually important to know what sort of plane it was on, because the carbon math is radically different depending on the plane. 
And then if you keep going, it's actually radically different depending on which engines were on that plane at the time. And we discovered that engines are actually transferred between planes quite frequently. And, and you have to find the places where you say, okay, enough. We, we can't go into that level of detail. We have to stop that. But each time you do it, you scratch your head and you wonder, okay, we, did, we took 15 people off plane flights this month. Well, those planes flew anyway. And a human being, if it's a 150-pound human being, that, that's not burning a shitload of jet fuel. And so did you actually save a bunch of carbon? And when you start to go down those rabbit holes, oh, my God, it becomes harder. We got paralyzed, completely paralyzed, because we couldn't be sure what we were doing was right. So I asked Bill McKibben, who was one of the sort of founding fathers of environmental and the environmental movement in the United States. He teaches up in Middlebury, and he writes for us. And I asked Bill if he would come down and, and talk to Bill and me. And we sat in my office, and we ran through what we we're doing, how we had done the carbon footprint what our plans were, how we were looking at stuff. And then we said, you know, but, but we can't tell if we're going in the right direction. And he looked at us. I'll never forget it. He looked at us and he said, look, he said, this is very impressive. He said, uh, what the work you've done. He said, uh, and you appear to be smart guys and you're taking it seriously. He said, just do it. Don't worry about it. Do it. Take action. Do it and do it now. And he said, and you're going to miss. And sometimes you'll, make the, sometimes you'll make the carbon emissions worse by what you do. But looking at the effort you're putting in, looking at how serious you take this, overall, the impact is going to be positive. And what you need to remember is what we're doing now doesn't work. So do, do something. That's what he said. Yeah, I was picking up through the whole thing. If I, if I read you right, that there's a mindset shift that was going on inside you, as well as a cultural shift going on inside the company. And the analysis or analysis and planning is one part of it, of what you have to do. But I mean, the passion you talked about earlier seems to be first going into studying and understanding the situation as it is, but also into really loving I mean, it sounds like, okay, you, were, you guys were paralyzed for a while. You guys couldn't get certain answers. You didn't even know how to form the questions, it sounded like, or, or didn't know when to stop asking. And yet through it, it seemed like that passion that you described at the beginning was driving you. That, like, What would you say to a CEO who might be listening to this saying, well, I do care about the environment. I don't know if I'm really passionate though. And I don't know if I want to get into it to the extent that he did. Maybe that was you at the beginning. Or maybe no, I, I, had made, I had made the commitment, right? And you have to do that, right? This, this stuff is large, extraordinarily complex, and very time consuming. And to do it well, you have to commit. So it, it's like anything in life, right? If you dabble in something, you can make a little progress here and there, but you don't get that far with anything if you dabble in it. And so you have to, you have to put time and energy and commitment in. And in this case, for, for me and for Bill, and eventually for the organization, it wasn't sort of an evolving, you know, ever increasing commitment. It was pretty much, I made the decision that this was going to be the thing and we were going to get after it. And then it was, you know, the passion was there from the beginning. And what we did is we spent all this time doing the carbon footprint. We involved some people in the company and all that. And then 
I give an annual speech every year where, you know, we get most of the employees in the company, all the ones in New York in a, in a big room. And, uh, and then I travel around the world to all the operating companies and I give the same speech room by room all around the world. And I try to get in front of all the employees. And so I took that speech one year and I gave the company results as usual and all that. And then for the first time ever, I used PowerPoint in it because this stuff's hard to do without uh, visuals. And because I usually just talk and uh, we had laid out, you know, this is the carbon footprint and this is where we're going to be. We're going to give ourselves 10 years to do it. We're going to set a target of knocking out 65% of our carbon emissions and we're going to give ourselves a decade. And uh, I'll be back to you every every year to tell you how we're doing. And we're going to start it with uh, committees. And I'm going to ask um, we're going to ask people throughout this company to to work on it. And then at the end, I said, you know, we've always had three goals in this organization: one to grow faster than the competition, two to give a good return to our shareholder, to our owner, and three to have fun while doing number one and two. And today, I announce a uh, fourth goal of the company. And that's to do less harm to the earth. And I said, and I expect everyone here to take that as a company goal and act on it. And so it was, it was full bore from the beginning. It didn't, you know, we launched it as sort of one of the core pieces of the culture of the company from the start. Was there conflict between the fourth and the first three or between the fourth and morale or anything like that? Or did they augment each other? Yeah, the, you know, the, the return to the shareholder was impacted, right? Because of that's generally speaking, that's profits. But in our company, because of the ownership, it's also uh, publishing important books and good books. So there's a there's part of the culture was baked in the sort of do right for the world was baked in through that return to the shareholder being, you know, do books that matter, do books that contribute to the national and international conversation. And so there was that component of it. The fun thing, it didn't affect at all. It increased the fun factor. It didn't stop us on the growth stuff. There wasn't real conflict on the growth. It made lowering the carbon really difficult, the fact that we were growing fast and we were succeeding on that goal. That makes it difficult, right? Because as you're growing, that means you're selling more books, which means you're printing more books, means you're chopping down more trees. That means you're burning more carbon. And we had decided to do scope one, scope two, and scope three. And so we decided uh, the books we printed were actually our carbon responsibility, not the paper companies and not the printer's responsibility. So, and we, we were, I was adamant that we didn't want to cut ourselves the slack of saying, well, we can calibrate for that and say, and uh, take out the growth function and lower the target by that. I was having none of that. So in essence, it wasn't a conflicting goal. And it, it did for a while cost money, but what happens, of course, with and, and this is what people should realize and they don't, if you do it aggressively and if you do it well, you manufacture less, you emit less energy, right? Because any energy you use in the workplace emits carbon, which means your bills for stuff go down. If you use lighter, flimsier paper so that you chop down fewer trees, that paper is cheaper. Now, if you want to put solar panels on your warehouse, then you got to write big checks. But if you want to turn off the lights unilaterally across the organization when you leave at night, that just drives the electricity bill down. I'm reading again, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this reducing part is, is to me sounds, 
it's a mix of fun and responsibility, if I'm reading you right. It's stewardship, I guess, would be the right word. That I think a lot of places would be like, who cares about the lights when no one's there? It's not, it's not that big of a deal. But I also think of it as an art. Like it, an artist cares about, you know, the brushstroke. Is it, uh, I have this quote from Martha Graham, the, the great dancer, and she said, you know, either the foot is pointed or it is not. No amount of dreaming will point it for you. And this attention to details, I think what is, comes with mastery and it returns a satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. And fun, fun is an interesting word, right? Because think of, think of what's fun for you. And it's not necessarily, you know, going to a big party and, and carrying on, right? The, there is satisfaction is fun, right? The, what you feel when you feel, when you feel you've done a job well or that you've made a difference, that feeling you have is, it's fun to have that feeling. That's not a burden. That's fun, right? When, when you think, you know, shit, I got that done, you know, damn, that was hard. And, you know, I stayed after it and we succeeded. That, you know, that's a fun feeling. And that, that's part of having fun. Yeah, it's, it's rewarding. It's meaningful. It's acting in the service of others. Yeah, particularly if you do it with other people, right? There's a multiplier effect of if you accomplish something alone, that's one level of, of sort of satisfaction fun. But if you're working hard shoulder to shoulder with other people, you together accomplish something. That is much more powerful because you share it. And just your adventure, you know, share a shared experience is more powerful than one you have alone. You just made me think of something that I didn't think to ask before. It could have happened that while you're doing this, maybe the competition who's not encumbered by these constraints might have leapt ahead of you. Was there, were there competitive issues? Yeah, sure. There's a fair amount of that, right? So if you're, if you're saying uh, we don't want to build a fancy booth for that trade show, and you go to the trade show and you got this small environmentally sound booth and, and all your competitors have these big fancy booths and the authors, you know, who come to the show look and you say, well, why would I want to publish with you? Look at these big flashy guys. They know how to market my book. You don't know how to market the book. Look, you're a, you got this pathetic little booth over here. So yeah, there was a lot of that. And we offset it a, a fair amount because people, particularly as the years went by, began to value what we were doing and, you know, would enjoy coming to work for us because of it. It became, it became, it was interesting on the, the best example is probably on the higher ed side of the business, college textbooks. So when we did this, I was adamant that we wouldn't publicize it. I said, we'll publicize it if we do it. But if we're just trying to do it, we're not going to publicize it. We're not going to make a big deal of this thing and say, you know, we commit to five years out doing this, that, and the other, that's going to be internal only. And I'd never let anybody, you know, carry on about it. The higher ed guys came to me and said, you know, we have, you know, can we put logos on the books and stuff like that? I said, no. I said, but you know what? You should feel free to talk about it with customers and with professors who are deciding what books to adopt. You should talk about it because it's important. In that case, you can imagine we had an environmental science book and, and it was a huge competitive advantage for us because they made up these flyers that explained what the program was and how we'd done it and where we were and, you know, the bar graph that showed we were making serious progress and the professors in environmental science just loved that. And so, you know, if their choice was between two publishers uh, for an adoption, they would lean toward us because of it. So it did have some 
wins in that regard uh, as far as competitive advantage. But in other times, people felt hamstrung by it and unhappy, you know, and it, it, it had negative effects. You know, telling somebody who sells books in the Rocky Mountain region and has to drive bookstore to bookstore, town to town, that they have to have a Prius is uh, that's a tough sell, you know, safety of the employee. That, that car does not work well on snow and ice. Right. So there, there it's pluses and minuses all the way across. Did you anticipate from the start that there'd be pluses and minuses? Because I think my feel is that most places, their view is that it's going to be a cost and any benefits are going to be really minor in comparison to, especially looking at it from a competitive standpoint. I didn't have that. I didn't sit down and think that through. Yeah, I probably should have. <laughs> I didn't know enough. You know, I, I thought this was, a, a look, I had a, it was clear in my mind, this was the right thing to do, period. And I thought if there's costs, there's costs. And if we have morale issues, we have morale issues. And if there's issues of authors leaving us because they don't like the paper we're using the book, we're going to live with that. And I knew it was the right thing to do. So I was willing to take losses to get it done. Now, I, I just realized that I've been fascinated and asking you these questions because I love what I'm hearing, learning what I'm hearing. And that process that I described at the beginning or before we recorded, it, it might take about 15 minutes. Do you, can we go into that? Sure. When you act on the environment, what are you thinking about? What motivates you? What images or what, like, where's it coming from? When you think about the environment, what do you think about? So I'm an outdoor guy, right? I grew up on a cattle ranch in Wyoming and I have always had a deep love for the outdoors. And you can see the stress we're putting on the earth if you, if you spend time in the outdoors deeply, right? Not, you know, if, if you hike in a mile and a half on some trail and back out to your car, and that's not being deep in the outdoors. If, you, if you're deep in the outdoors, if you're part of uh, sort of raw nature and you do it over time, you can feel it. You can feel, if you have a deep appreciation for animals and what their lives are like. And if you look at yourself as an animal, as opposed to a special human, but first as an animal, which I always have, you can feel that, that uh, we're doing tremendous harm to the earth. So for me, for me, it was, uh, it was the understanding that as I, uh, a person who has, call it power, that uh, there's responsibility that comes with power, right? And that, that, uh, that it probably it wasn't okay to just you know occasionally drop in on on nature when I whenever I could and and uh, just go for it and and do these things. It's pretty it's pretty clear when you see the you know when you look at a pine forest in the Pacific Northwest or the Rocky Mountain West and all the trees are brown and the reason they're brown is is you know the pine beetle and they're they're dead because the beetle has killed them. But then you think you know well how did that happen? And the answer is it's the it's the drought, right? And the drought is caused by climate change. So you you look out over what miles and miles of this fantastic sort of dark, rich green landscape and the snow-capped peaks and all that, and then you see these big swaths of brown, and it's it's pretty clear evidence, you know? It's pretty clear. The trees can fight off the pine beetle if they're strong, and they're not strong because they don't have enough water. So, you know, in that way, that's what personally triggered it in me. When you describe the deep, the feeling when you're deep in nature, what emotions, is it something you put into words? I mean, I haven't been, I mean, I've been to some extent, but I I think not to the extent you have. 
What does it feel like? What you, what you understand when you're deep in, in nature is your, is your personal insignificance, right? That's the thing that is very clear to you. So where I grew up, they have some of the oldest exposed rock on earth. So you can go sit on a three billion year old piece of exposed rock. And the thing you're sitting on is three billion years old. And if you can get in a place where there's no human life within, say, 30 or 50 miles of you, that you are the only human, and you see all the animals, and you see all the plants, and you see the rich, incredibly rich life that is going on on the planet without you, without any, you're nothing. You are a speck in the middle of this. It makes you understand who you are. And what you are as a human being. And that's the great power of it. That's the great power of nature. It, it, uh, and it is, it is freeing to understand that you're a, a short-time visitor on a, in a magnificent ecosystem. I have to spend some more time out in nature. Yeah, yeah. You should. Get away from other people. That's the thing. That's the power of it, right? If you're away from people, if you're, if you're alone in it. I went to a place in Alaska once where uh, a few years ago, I went backcountry skiing, the most remote wilderness in North America, Wrangell St. Elias. It's in Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska. And uh, we flew back in and there were no people. I mean, they dropped us off on this glacier in the middle of, seriously, as as nowhere as you can get. And uh, there were no living creatures because it was all rock, snow, and ice. And it was silent. And I mean, silent. So when the wind wasn't blowing... There was literally no sound. And what you realize when you live for a few days and no sound at all, it's a humbling experience. It's a remarkable experience in that you realize how valuable that is. And you realize how cluttered you are by the incredible amount of noise. If you're in New York City, you are living in huge amounts of noise all the time. And if you get all the way alone in nature, you, you, can, get a, you can get away from that. At, back to what it used to be. Anyway, carry on. That's uh, I'm off topic. I apologize. Not at all. On the contrary, the, what you described, that the humility, the, the freedom, the being a speck, knowing one's place as, as, a, as a temporary, short-term visitor. Based on those feelings, I invite you, this is at your option. To think of something you can do, something you're not already doing, not something you delegate to someone else, but something you do, something physical, to act on those feelings. And before you answer, a lot of people hear something different than I said. I'm, I'm not saying what's the most important thing you, you can do or what Greenpeace says you should do or National Geographic says. It's not about fixing the world, although that will almost certainly be a, a small side effect, but something to do to act on those feelings in your life. And, you know, it can be long-term, it can be short-term, it can be big, it can be small, but just something that you do. And if you're up for it, I'd ask you back a second time to share how that thing went. That's an interesting question. I sit here um, going through my mind what that might be. And, and, and what's interesting about it is I've done that exercise repeatedly over time. And I've come to the place where I'm doing what I think is the right, where I am personally is correct for my sort of the family I live in and, and the people I do. But let me not give you a flip answer. Let me, let me think on that because there's, I have these long lists of uh, my sins 
And, and it's a long list, right? It is for all of us. And the right way to do this is to pick the thing that is most impactful, that can have the biggest impact, that you have confidence you will do, right? Because to pick something that, you know, like a New Year's resolution, you know, is you're never going to, I'm never going to eat chocolate chip cookies again, right? Ha ha. The right thing is to pick something that is in the right range of doable that you haven't thought of to do already. Yeah, give me, I'll, I'll, I'll try to, pros, let's, get, let's go for it. We're at the end. The answer will be, it's about garbage for me. I, I use far too much plastic and I recycle it. And I get the sense that I'm doing okay because I recycle it. But, you know, it's, it's not okay. And the problem is, for me, the biggest source that is glaringly obvious is food containers. So the right, the right answer for me is a, a uh, radical reduction in the use of plastic around the food I eat. So that'll be it. And that means, you know, walking by your favorite store where you get your favorite food to find the other deli that actually wraps the food in paper or cardboard or will for you when you ask. And um, that has never been a strength of mine. So that's what I'll do. So the next step would be to make it a smart goal, to make it specific. I mean, usually specific and time bound. I mean, you might do it for the rest of your life, but for this you know, whatever time feels like a good amount of time for you to feel like oh, I got a feel for it and I can tell Josh how it went. So that's probably, uh, from my experience, that's generally uh, shorter than six months doesn't do you much good. So probably six months. Okay. And are you shooting for zero? Or are you shooting for a meaningful amount? I, I find that the more specific it is. I'd, I'd say it's hard because, you know, you can't measure the history you can't measure, right? There's no way to I haven't been measuring it and there's no way to go back and get the data of what I was using. So what I'd say is I'd cut it in half. Okay. And just basically, I mean, this is kind of following Bill McKibben. It's like, we don't know exactly what it was, but we're going in the right direction. Is it, am I reading that right? Yeah. Yeah. If I could go in the right direction and I can, uh, and I can come back and tell you, did I get half? Well, I'm not sure. I get, I won't be able to say I'm sure I get half unless, unless, it, it picks up momentum and I can tell you I'm down to zero. Then we, then we know I got, I got past half, right? Yeah. <laughs> so would it be okay with you if we schedule a conversation in, well, let's see, would it take six months for you to be able to say how it's going or yeah, I mean, sure. we could also talk earlier if that, if you feel like earlier, you'd feel like, Oh, I, I it hasn't been six months yet, but I, I've gotten a feel for it. Or should we wait till six months? Either way works with me, Josh. I'm happy to check in with you in, in uh, three months to see how I'm doing and, and decide then whether it's worth talking about. Okay. Then after we stop recording, I'll check. We'll, we'll coordinate calendars on that. Okay. And, oh, you know, one thing I share this with, with people, not everyone, but there's two things that often come up that, you know, there's no way you can come up with everything, that you can plan for everything. But two things that come up the most, I find, are other people and especially family and travel that these tend to make these things a little more difficult. And what I don't suggest is try to think of everything possible ahead of time and prepare for all eventualities because I think that's impossible. Maybe some people can. And some people, they'll say, no matter what, I will stick with it. You know, and some people say, well, I don't know if I, you know, if I'm, if I'm visiting my mom and she says, here's this package thing and she feels tied to it, you know, I'm not gonna, I'll, I'll let the family override this thing. I don't know the answers. Just the one thing is that some people come back and they say, 
something happened and then I just gave up. That generally doesn't work very well. So unforeseen things will come up. I'm sure you know this. I mean, you've you've just been talking about decades of this or a decade of this in in, in work. Yeah, there are, uh, look, COVID is a great example, right? COVID came up and boy, wasn't it good for the earth. The whales off the coast of Long Island appear happier. You can see it. You know, it's it's a remarkable thing. Um, so COVID was great. I haven't traveled, you know, I haven't been on an airplane now and it's coming up on 12 months. And that wasn't a conscious thing. It was just the world changed. So, you know, the world can change other ways, right? It, it's It's very unlikely that I'll be able to reduce my travel next year from this year because reducing from zero is pretty hard. Well, let's wrap up for this episode. And I look forward to following up more. And I'm going to keep asking you questions next time, not just about your experience with this, with the reducing the packaging, but also more about Macmillan and, and that process. Sure. Glad to do it. And for wrapping up here, I, I like to close with asking, is there anything that you want to say directly to the listeners? Is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Why don't we, uh, why don't we leave that for our next conversation? There's, there's a lot, you know, it is, uh, this is a large and complex problem and working your way through it, uh, working my way through it over a decade. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of advice to give and there's a lot of experience to share that might make it uh, somewhat easier for other folks. So we'll talk about it next time. Sounds good. John Sargent, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I can't wait for next time to hear that advice and to hear how his commitment goes. Besides the page I read from before this recording, he and Macmillan haven't been completely silent, but they haven't trumpeted their achievements either. They've shared enough to ensure accountability. I find leaders love accountability and public all the more so, but they didn't do this work to gain publicity, so they didn't seek publicity. So no criticism for me at all on keeping humble, but I hope their story gets more publicity since John and McMillan could serve as role models for a lot of people and a lot of organizations. Everyone who considers acting sees the challenge, but not always the rewards inherent in the process of overcoming the challenges, and not always the rewards of reaching the other side of them. His experience gives us a lot more to look forward to. I helped to help bring his message to a lot more people. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.